0: It is so good to be back. Good to see all of you and be together with you. You know, I, we had a great trip. We took, for those of you who don't know, we took a, a group from our church and some folks not from our church to Greece and followed in, in the footsteps of Paul in his second missionary journey. We saw uh, the ruins of Philippi where... Uh, Paul and Silas cast out the, the demon from the slave girl, and then the little, uh, the remains of the prison where, uh, where they were imprisoned for just a few hours before the earthquake set them free. We saw the ruins of Corinth. Uh, there's the Bema seat. It's still there, the judgment seat where Paul stood trial before Gallio, the, the procurator of that region. Uh, Athens, there's tons of stuff to see there. I didn't realize until I got there that Mars Hill, where Paul preached in Acts 17, is right there at the Acropolis. I mean, it's just steps away. Lots of things we saw. Then we got to go to Rome, which is even more spectacular. Um, And we ate a lot of good food. You know, I I hate to tell you this, but tomatoes are better in Greece. I had a Greek salad with pretty much every meal. I I just, they were so good. And then, anybody here ever had gelato? Gelato is Italian ice cream, and they have like a gelato stand every three shops in Greece and and in Italy. And I've had gelato before, before I went there, and I always thought, yeah, the Greeks don't, I mean, the Italians don't know anything about ice cream. This is not Blue Bell. But then I actually had it made by Italians and Greeks, and it's different. And so the whole trip was like, "Uh, you know, we got five minutes. We can squeeze in some gelato, right? You know, Uh, why not? I haven't tried that flavor. And then pretty soon it was, hey, uh, we can't squeeze into our pants. So, uh, you know, these things happen. But wonderful trip, wonderful group that went with us. But I realized something. Uh, oh, and by the way, I also had this interesting experience a week ago Sunday. I just, I just like, okay, I think I'll turn on, see how First Baptist is doing. Just in time to hear Michael Van Gorp make a crack about my height. He didn't <laughs> apparently think that I was going to be watching, right? Doesn't he look intimidated? No, I don't think so. But anyway... I realized something when I got home and, you know, it's really rare for me to be out two Sundays in a row. And James posted a video of the worship band leading a song. And I just, I watched it and I started to tear up and I realized, man, I miss singing with our church. I miss being here and singing songs of praise. I miss the choir, I miss the orchestra, I miss the praise band, I miss y'all. So it is good to be home. There's no place like home. And that's especially true for a believer in Christ. No place like your home church. So let's turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, uh, one of, I mean, the Psalms are some of the most honest things you've ever read. This is one of those. If you've never read the Psalms, you're going to be surprised at how honest, how earthy this, this particular prayer is. Some of you are familiar with the concept of seven deadly sins. You probably know this, but that's not in the Bible. In the Bible, there's no idea or notion that one sin is worse than another. All sin is sin, right? All sin separates us from God and needs to be forgiven. Uh, But back in the early days of the church, there were these people... Uh, who felt this urge to get away from society, to to go out into the desert, to live in a cave, or to live, you know, live out someplace away from culture and just commune with God? And they called themselves. We call them the Desert Fathers, uh, monastics, and they came up with this idea that there are certain sins that are especially dangerous because they lead to other sins. So. Pride, for instance, being prideful is a sin, but being proud can lead to other sins. Lust is a sin, but being lustful can lead to other sins. And so that's where the idea of the seven deadly sins come from. And then the church took over and turned it into, okay, watch out for these seven. When you look at that list of seven sins, one of the interesting things I never really thought of until I was preparing for this message, six out of the seven are actually pretty fun in a short-term manner right? I mean, it's fun. Gluttony is a lot of fun, as I learned in Greece and Rome, right? Gluttony is a a whole lot of fun. Laziness, pride, lust, even anger. Anger is fun. When you're mad, you feel, like we said a couple weeks ago, like the, the hero of your own action film. But the one exception is envy. Envy is no fun at all. Envy doesn't make you feel good about yourself. It just makes you miserable. And science backs this up. Being envious can actually shorten your lifespan. It can lead to health problems. It can hurt your mental health. Just tell you a quick story. Back in 2012, observers noted with great alarm that the rate of suicide, depression, anxiety among teenagers spiked. So nine years ago, all of a sudden, this became a much bigger problem among teenagers. And in the years since, in the nine years since, They've sought for reasons why, but one thing they all agree on, you know what else happened in 2012? That's the year the iPhone came out. That's the year smartphones became prevalent. That's the year it was common to see your average teenager holding a device with which they could keep in touch with all their friends 24-7. So I know a lot of you are younger than me, but when I was growing up, and some of you resonate with this when I was growing up, I mean, it's hard being a teenager no matter what era you're growing up in. But in my day, if my friends got together and did something fun and didn't invite me, I'd probably never find out about it. I'd be none the wiser unless one of them just stumbled and told me, but even then it would be days later. And I'd be like, what's up? But today, if that happens, you know it while it's happening because it's on your social media feed. All your friends are taking selfies and they're posting pictures of the things they're doing and you see it and you're going, nobody called me. Why, what does that say about what they think of me? If that girl I really like goes to the prom with somebody else, I can't just go play basketball with my friends because I'm, I'm going to check my Instagram and there's going to be a picture of them together and it's going to cut me like a knife. If if, you know, that girl gets into that college that I wanted to get into, or if if, uh, his daddy buys him that car and I don't even have a car, or if their family goes on this trip to Cancun and I've never even been out of the country, all these things are right there in front of me and I'm looking at them at 16, 17, 18 years old and thinking, that's the life I want. Why can't I have that life? And it's not just teenagers, you understand that, right? I mean, you don't have to, you never get too old or too young for envy. I heard a story about, a preacher sitting in a group of other preachers and he was kind of feeling sorry for himself, complaining about his lot in life. And he said, and literally said these words, I believe that, and this is a long time ago, obviously, I believe that if I would have married somebody like Ruth Graham, you know, the wife of Billy Graham, if I would have married her instead of the woman I married, I'd be a great evangelist today too. Well, that's envy. That, That is ridiculous. Don't you feel sorry for his wife for one thing? You know, just a, a quick story from Greece. One of the things I learned, so, many, so much over there is built out of marble because marble is common in that part of the world. That's where we get most of the marble over here today. And you see these magnificent marble buildings and even houses. And, and our guide told us, yeah, you, you don't see much stuff that's built of wood because the only trees that really grow here are olive trees and they're, they're too hard to make lumber out of. And so if you're a Greek and you want to show off, you want to say, look, I've really made it. I'm better than you. I've I've got more money than you. You build a house of wood. So imagine a a Greek person living in their beautiful marble house, looking at their neighbor in their wood house and saying, now that's the life I want. That's envy. Not Not only does it make you miserable, not only is it against the word of God, the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. But it doesn't even make sense. And today we're gonna talk about how heaven is the cure for envy. Understanding that heaven is real, the reality of the future, and what we have to look forward to makes envy seem ridiculous. Now, Psalm 73 is written by a guy named Asaph. Asaph was uh, uh, basically a music minister in the ancient world. He was a Levite musician. He worked in the court of the king. And he writes about a specific kind of jealousy, a specific kind of envy, and that is envy of unbelievers. It's looking at people who don't follow God and saying, okay, they seem to be doing better than I am. And it's all through the scriptures. God knew we would struggle with this. So for instance, Proverbs twenty-four nineteen says, fret not yourself because of evildoers and be not envious of the wicked. Proverbs twenty-four nineteen, And that could be as simple as, a child who says to his mom, mom, why do I have to go to church? I mean, none of my friends go to church. They get up, they they sleep till 10. They get up and play video games or watch the NFL preview shows or go out and play baseball. Why do I have to go to church? Or maybe it's a, a single young woman who looks around at all the other women her age and, and says, you know, they don't share my convictions about what it is to live a righteous and pure life. And they're not lonely like I am. Maybe if I compromised some of my convictions. Or a, a married man who all the guys he works with are single, and they seem to be living the life of a beer commercial or a rap video. And meanwhile, he comes home to dirty diapers and his wife's saying, okay, here's the kids. Take them. Get away. Get away. Get away. I mean, that's, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a woman who runs a business, and she notices that all her competitors are able to cut corners They're able to offer a substandard product, make it look like a good product. They're able to pay their workers a less than livable wage. Whereas she's trying to live with integrity and righteousness, but they're getting ahead of her because they're cutting these corners. Or a guy who at work, he notices that the guy who gets ahead of him at work, the guy who gets the job, who gets the promotion, he's a jerk to his family, to all his friends. And yet God seems to bless that guy, but not him. And if you've ever felt that emotion, then Asaph knows where you're coming from because that's what Psalm 73 is about. He starts with verse one, you know where they usually start, verse one. And he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. We're gonna see what he's talking about in a moment. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In our day and age, we think of fatness as something bad, something to avoid because of health issues, because we we live in a society where we have way more food than we need, and so we overeat, and so we get into health troubles. In that culture, it was the exact opposite, and it's still that way in many parts of the world today, where the average person could barely get enough food to survive. So if you had meat on your bones, it was a sign, oh, you must be doing well. You can afford to eat more than you have to just to survive. And he said, I look at my, my, my neighbors who don't even believe in you. And, and they're, they're healthy, they're strong. They've got meat on their bones. I'm, my ribs are showing. Why is that, God? Verse eight, they scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. We didn't read verse six, but verse six says they're, they're clothed with violence like a garment. These are not just people who aren't believers who, who follow a different religion. These are people who are actively evil in the way that they behave. He says, they set their mouths against the heavens and the tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. These people run around mocking God, mocking anyone who believes in God. And yet they seem to be prospering, thriving, getting the life that I want, the life that I think I deserved. Now, I said earlier that when he said, my feet had almost stumbled, we'll see what he means. Well, here it is in verse 13. All in vain have I kept myself pure, my heart clean, and washed my hands in innocence. See, that's where, that's where envy turns into bitterness. It's one thing to look at someone and say, gosh, I wish I had what he has. I wish I had the life that she has. But to say, therefore, all of my efforts to serve God, all of my, all of my worship, my reverence, all of my prayers, all of my, all of my attempts to be obedient, all of that's been a waste of time. I would have done better just chucking it all and, and doing whatever, I, whatever my heart desires. And that's where Asaph was. In fact, in verse 22, he goes further. He says, when, I was, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Envy makes us animal-like. We, we stop thinking logically and we start thinking like a, an animal, like a brute beast. I, I grew up in cattle country and it was very common for me in the car to see, you know, drive past a pasture and see a cow sticking her whole head out through the barbed wire fence to eat the grass on the other side. I mean, she's literally cutting her neck on the barbs on that fence because she's convinced herself that the grass over there has got to taste better than the grass over here. And that's us. That's envy. That's what envy does to us. So what is the cure? Some of you are in the midst of this right now. What is the cure? What is it that saved Asaph from ruining his own life? Well, first he says, take your feelings to God. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God verse 16 and 17. See, the worst mistake you can make when you are angry at God, when you don't understand what's going on, when you're depressed, when you're discouraged, when you're doubtful, and I see Christians do this all the time, the worst mistake you can make is just to say, okay, I'm, I'm just not gonna talk to God for a while. I'm not gonna go to church. I'm not gonna pray. I'm not gonna open the Bible because I'm just I, it's not working for me. I don't, I'm, I'm not happy with it. The second worst mistake you can make, by the way, that's what Asaph seems to have done. He seems to have stopped going to the temple for a while. The second biggest mistake you can make is to say, I'm just gonna pretend everything's all right. I'm not gonna acknowledge these thoughts I'm having, these feelings I'm going through. I'm gonna go to church and I'm gonna sit in my life group and I'm gonna put a smile on my face and act like everything's fine. See, the Bible says that God wants honesty from us. In fact, he rewards it. And some of the greatest men and women in Scripture were people who said stuff before the Lord that you and I would probably be afraid to say. You read most of the Psalms are, are like I said earlier, extremely honest, where people say uh, outright rude things to God. I mean, look at Job, for instance. Forty chapters, this guy sits in a pile of dust and ashes and complains before God and says, Lord, you're not being fair. You're not treating me like I deserve. I have done my best to serve you and you've given me nothing but pain and I don't understand and I wish you would show up and explain it to me. And meanwhile, his three friends are sitting there in his presence and they're all going, Shh, don't, don't talk like that, Job. You can't say those kinds of things. God's gonna strike you down. He's not that kind of God. And, and 40 chapters, this goes on. And then it ends, and I'm sorry if you've never read Job, I'm about to spoil it for you, but you get to the end of the story and God shows up. It's the biggest surprise ending, second biggest surprise ending in the Bible. There's that empty tomb thing about, to think about, but you know, Job, God shows up at the end of Job in a whirlwind, in a, in a thunderstorm, and he says, hey, you three friends, you're all idiots. You should have kept your mouth shut because the stuff you think you know about me is not true. Job gets me, Job understands. He brought his... He brought his feelings to me. He didn't hide. Now, if you need something, you ask Job to pray for you. Because God already, listen, he already knows what we're thinking. He already knows what we're going through. So why why pretend? Why not just sit before him and say, God, I don't understand. In fact, that's what I want us to do right now, okay? I'm gonna give you a minute of silence and I want you to spend that time Whatever doubts you're struggling with, whatever fears, whatever anger, bitterness, envy, just sit before God and say it to him silently. And if you're not struggling with any of that stuff, pray for someone you know who is, okay? So starting right now, let's bow our heads in silence. Lord, we thank you that you are a strong enough God to understand what we're going through and to take the worst we have to throw at you and to still love us anyway. And I pray that we would learn that kind of dependence upon you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So that's what, that was the answer for Asaph. While he, while he kept to himself, isolated from God and from the community, while he just focused on his own feelings of anger and envy, he was miserable. He had to enter the sanctuary. He had to come before the Lord. Today, we don't need to go into a temple. We can, we can do that anywhere we are. We can call upon God and say, Lord, here's what I'm going through. I need you right now. But the second thing that Asaph shows us is you need to realize the reality of judgment. Remember we said, these people we're talking about, they're not just ordinary unbelievers. They're evil. They're, they're doing terrible things. Asaph isn't just upset that they're prospering. He's upset that they're not being punished for the things they're doing. They're, they're committing acts of violence. They're hurting others. They're actively hurting the faith of other people. They're mocking people who believe in God. And, and I wanna remind you of verse 11, where, where, where he says, uh, Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. It's like, you probably know people today who they make it their mission in life to mock faith in God. And people look at them and go, well, obviously they're smarter than I am. I'm gonna trust in what they say. They, they know what they're talking about. And you wanna say, well, God, why aren't you proving yourself? Why aren't you vindicating those of us who are trying to be faithful? And what we need to understand is That is coming. Verse 18, Asaph writes, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So so once he gets into the sanctuary of God, once he starts seeing through God's eyes again, he realizes, oh, their victory is short-lived. They are gonna face judgment. They are gonna face judgment. Uh, punishment for what they're doing. And and y'all, I know some of you are getting uncomfortable right now because in general, American Christians don't like to talk about judgment. We don't like to talk about wrath. We especially don't like to hear about hell. All All that's, you know, old time hard shell Baptist fire and brimstone stuff that we left behind a long time ago, right? And yet it's in the Bible. So what do we do with that? I hear people sometimes say, I don't understand. God tells us, love your enemies, pray for those who hate you. And then he turns around and says, I'm gonna gonna pour out this wrath and this judgment. And and why doesn't God hate his, why doesn't God love his enemies like he's commanded us to do? Well, here's here's one way I understand that quandary or that paradox. Imagine, Imagine you're a kid, a teenager in a really rough neighborhood. And every day there's this gang of thugs that just harass you. They chase you, they when they catch you, they pound you, they, they steal your stuff. You, you're afraid one of these days they're gonna kill you. And, and imagine you approach the cop who patrols your neighborhood and you just say, okay, hey, you know this guy and this guy and this guy? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know those boys. And you say, okay, well, here's what they're doing to me. And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm either gonna find a gun and take them all out or I'm gonna join them. And then I can be part of the group that's doing the beaten up instead of being beaten up. And imagine a policeman who would say to that, I'll oh, just leave those boys alone. They're good boys. And don't bother me with this stuff. I got bigger fish to fry. You see, that's, that's what God would be like if he said to us, love your enemies, pray for those who hate you, turn the other cheek, carry a burden an extra mile, and then said, but I'm not gonna do anything about it. Yeah, take the punishment and yeah, you're on your own. But instead, God is the cop who says, Hey, don't you do anything. This is my job. I'm the one that keeps the peace. I'm the one that punishes evil. You let me handle this. You keep your hands clean. And that's why God says to us, leave room for the wrath of God. That's in in Romans 12. In other words, if you want to take matters into your own hands, fine. But you're going to pay. You're going to go down with them. But if you'll leave room for the wrath of God, he says the next verse, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. It's one of the good things about knowing that there's a judgment day coming for every single person who ever lived, me, you, everybody. One of the good things about that is we realize nobody ever really gets away with anything. Because we live in a world where we see people get away with stuff. We see people violate little children and they're never brought to light. We see people murder others. We see dictators who slaughter thousands upon thousands of their people. We see you know, rich, and, rich and famous people commit terrible crimes and because they can afford the right representation, they never get punished. And you realize, oh yeah, but they will be. No one ever really gets away with anything. You know, God's message to us is, somebody's gonna pay for that. Either they're gonna pay or they're gonna realize that I already paid on the cross and they'll come to me and be healed. And then they're no longer your enemy, they're your brother or your sister. But either way you win. The reality of judgment takes away any sense of envy. And then number three, and this is the best part, reorder your hope. Put your hope in the right things. When I was in seminary studying for ministry, I can remember a story. I don't even remember what the context of this story was. I just remember the professor telling us uh, about a colleague of his, a guy who had actually taught at that exact seminary. And some years earlier, this man had shocked everyone. He'd left his wife and his kids for a much younger woman, uh, of course, threw his ministry away. Uh, and, you know, it was one of those moments where he was very honest with us. Because some, some of you will understand what I'm about to say. You don't necessarily envy that person if you're, if you're like my professor. You don't say, oh, I wish I was him. But at the same time, there's that voice inside your head that's saying, he's having fun right now. I love my wife. I love my kids. I would never do anything to hurt them. I would never betray the Lord. I would, And yet, you know, it'd be nice to act like I was in my 20s again. Yeah, that would, that would be enjoyable. And he said, then one day, a couple of years later, he met, he, he ran into that professor, that former colleague with his new wife. They're out in public somewhere and they sat down and talked just to catch up. He said, it took me about five minutes to realize it was nothing like I thought. He said, you know, that young woman, she didn't love him. She didn't even like him. She treated him like a child. she disrespected him. She bossed his life around. Meanwhile, here's this guy who once stood in front of men and women who were called to the ministry and raised up the next generation of leaders and taught the greatest truth that have ever been handed down to mankind and carried them forward for for generation after generation. He had this incredible position of authority and he threw it all away. And now he was just this guy who was desperately infatuated with someone who didn't even like him and was terrified that he was going to lose her. And he was just this pathetic wretch of a man. And the point point I'm trying to make to you is oftentimes the people we look at and say, you know, it'd sure be nice to enjoy some of what they're enjoying. Oftentimes those are some of the most miserable people on earth. And don't get me wrong. They're pursuing pleasure and they're experiencing some pleasure. There's, There's a reason why sin is attractive. But it's like, they're buying it on credit and the bill comes due way sooner than they think it will. They're putting it on their card and that bill shows up and they're like, wait, I'm not, even, I'm not even done enjoying this. And it's already turned on them. That's idolatry. When you put your hope in anything other than God, the bill always comes due sooner than you think. It always costs way more than you thought it would. And you're like, but that pleasure didn't last long enough. It never does. Now, look what Asaph says verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. he's talking about heaven there. He's not giving us any details because frankly, I don't think Asaph knew any details then. God, God doesn't actually start revealing details about heaven as far as I can tell until Isaiah. And that's about 700 years before Jesus. That's where we see it in the Bible start to to appear. So Asaph doesn't know what heaven's like. All he knows is I'm going to be in the presence of God's glory. Now, some of you remember a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, we were studying the book of Exodus and we saw how Moses said to God, okay, Lord, show me your glory. And what I said at the time was that's Moses' way of saying, Lord, I want to see all of you. I've gotten a taste of you. I've gotten, a, I've gotten to know you from a distance. Here I was I was this miserable 80-year-old guy just kind of wandering in the wilderness. And now you made me this heroic person full of courage and joy and purpose and, and all that stuff, all, that, all everything that I have now, it came from you. You're the source. I wanna get past the middle man and I just wanna get straight to you, you the source. I don't wanna sit here you know, enjoying manna and enjoying you know, earthly stuff. I wanna see your glory. And God said, I love you for that, Moses, but you can't see me yet. It's just not time. I'm gonna put you in the, in the cleft of a rock, cover you with my hand. I'll let you see a little bit of me, but not all of me. Remember that? And then here's Asaph saying, someday I'm gonna have what Moses sought after. I'm gonna get to the source of all good things. I'm gonna get into the presence of God. He's gonna bring me there. And because I know that, because I know that now I can focus on the fact that I have something the world can't give me and the world can't take away. He goes on and, and, and says it this way, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Just imagine, just a little while ago, he's saying, boy, my feet almost stumbled. I almost slipped. I almost walked away from God because I saw all that stuff those other people have. And now I look at them and I don't even envy them anymore. I feel sorry for them because the stuff they've poured their life out to gain, it's gonna go away like that. Their riches are gonna fly away. Their, their youth and beauty is gonna, is gonna wrinkle up and, and, and be gone. Their, their fame, their popularity, their success, it's all gonna melt. And I'll still have you, Lord the source of all good things. I'll still have you. What else do I need? What else should I even seek after? Nothing, because you are it. And folks, that is hope. That is what the Bible calls hope. And the world can't give it and the world can't take it away. And every time I'm watching an interview with a celebrity, be it a movie star, politician, uh, athlete, actor, whatever the case may be, and, and they're asked a question about the afterlife, because you'd be surprised how often this happens. I've kind of got my, my feelers out for it, but you'll, you'll hear it often. They'll, they'll be interviewing this person and they'll say, so what do you think happens once you die? And suddenly this person who's confident and, and bold and beautiful and articulate, suddenly they'll become very quiet and introspective and they'll say things like, well, you know, um, I'm not really sure, but I hope. Or, you know, I'd like to believe that this is what it's like, but I, I don't really know. And I, I just find myself feeling sorry for those people. I, I just realize you're missing something, something wonderful that I've been given as a free gift that you could have too and you just don't realize it. You know, envying people who don't have the hope that we have, here's how ridiculous it is. Okay, I thought of this because, maybe because I was going on this trip. Imagine you've been given, free of charge, a ticket to whatever your favorite paradise is, okay? So if you're a tropical person, it's Tahiti, it's Hawaii, it's you know Jamaica, whatever. Or if you're like you know cold, mountainy places, it's the Swiss Alps, it's Colorado, it's you know Alaska, whatever the case may be. So you're given this ticket to paradise. You're in line to board the plane at the airport, minutes away from flying out to this wonderful place. You look across the airport terminal and you see a guy eating a cheeseburger at one of the little airport food stands, and you think, Ooh, man, I didn't eat anything this morning man, that cheeseburger looks good. And then the more you look at that, you think, man, I wish I was him instead of me. Now that doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, as Jimmy Buffett says, there's cheeseburgers in paradise, right? You know, so that's not a problem. You would rather trade a piece of food that's probably not even good, and you're going to eat it in five minutes for a trip that you'll remember the rest of your life. And that's, Envying someone who doesn't have the hope that we have in Christ. We're going somewhere wonderful. And Jesus did call it paradise. And nobody can take that away from us. Let me just close with this. See, Asaph was right on the verge of ruining his life, and then he went into the sanctuary. And what did he see there? What what did he see in the Temple of Jerusalem? He didn't see a pulpit, he didn't see stained glass windows. Guitar, drums, piano, organ. He saw an altar of sacrifice. That's what Israelite worship was based on, an altar of sacrifice. So when you and I, when we're bitter, when we're brutal and and animal-like, when we're full of envy, doubt, what we need to do is take a look at our altar of sacrifice, and that is the cross. Because on that cross, this is why we don't sacrifice animals anymore. On that cross, Jesus laid down his life once and for all. And on that cross, we see any thought in our minds that says, oh, hey, I deserve better than this. I've lived a pure life. No, I haven't. If I would lived a pure life, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die in my place. Oh, well, then you know what? If he's willing to do that, and isn't he willing and able to give me any good thing I might possibly need? So why am I worried that I don't have this particular car or this particular girlfriend or this particular job or this particular house? Why am I worried about that when he's already given me everything and will give me everything I need in days to come? When I, the more time I spend at the foot of that cross, the less room in my heart there is for envy The more time I spend at the foot of that cross, the more I can say, Lord, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever.